0: I'm taking a big bite out of Revelation this morning. We're going through chapters 15 and 16. Now, before you run out with the kids, let me assure you we'll be going at a more accelerated pace than uh, what I do when I spend 45 minutes on two verses. I promise you that. As we come to this text, we're continuing our series through the book of Revelation And when we were looking through the passage that we last investigated, chapter 14, we found the Word of God sharing with us a terrible state that we'll find on earth. We saw a preparation for a closing battle. We found in this passage of Scripture some terrible things that lie ahead for the earth. And as we come to the 15th chapter... We come to the part of Revelation that discusses the final seven seals that God is going to visit upon the earth. Uh, Just a moment, Um, Dan, it did it again, so uh, I'll toss that to you. If you guys could just advance slides when I tell you to, I would appreciate it. Oh, there you go, I'll I'll take it back. (laughs) All right. That's my tech guy. He knows the stuff. At any rate, as, as we come to this text, we really see the culmination of God's wrath that's directed toward the earth. And there are many people that read passages of Scripture like this, and they walk away with this attitude of, wow, you know, why is God so wrathful? Why is God sharing in His Word destruction and horrors that are going to be visited upon the earth. Why in the world does a loving God do this to mankind? And you know what amazes me is the very people who often ask questions like that, who will say, how can a loving God do these things to human beings? They are the very people who also complain that when evil takes place on earth, God does nothing about it. They can't have it both ways. God is a loving God. God is a God of grace. God is a God of mercy and long-suffering. But God is also a just God. And His wrath is the expression of His justice for the things that man has done in the way of sin that have long been done but have been subject to His long-suffering and His mercy. But now as we come to this section of the book of Revelation, we find seven seals that, or excuse me, seven bowls that will be poured upon the earth. And the reason they're described as bowls is because they contain the very wrath of God. Now as we've gone through Revelation, we've seen seven seals, we've seen seven trumpets, and now we are going to look at seven seals. As you know, the seventh seal were the seven trumpets, and the seventh trumpet are now the seven seals, and all of these are judgments that God visits upon the earth, but these seven seals really bring it to a head. As a matter of fact, what we find as we look into the Scripture is this is the culmination of God's wrath visited upon the earth because of man's sin. So let's look carefully at this 15th chapter, and what we want to see as we go through this chapter is, first of all, this. There is a preparation for this coming wrath, this conclusion of all of the judgments that God is visiting upon the earth, and it takes place in heaven. And that's what's described for us here in chapter 15. Look at the first couple of verses. John shares, then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are to last, or which are the last. For with them the wrath of God is finished. This will be the culmination of the great tribulation period. And this will be the time when God really visits His wrath upon the earth in a unique way. Although the other plagues, the other judgments have been terrible, these will be the worst of the lot. And they're going to be poured out upon the earth because of the sin of man. Now, let's think about the context for this. We have had the works of the Antichrist described for us in some detail. We've seen the horrible things that he will do in blaspheming holy God, in persecuting and even murdering the followers of God. And now God is finally going to stop it. And the Antichrist, the false prophet, and all who have followed them will pay the price for their hatred toward God, their disobedience toward God, and their brutality toward the people of God. This is God putting a stop to it. The Scripture goes on to discuss in detail the heavenly scene. Look at the second verse. And as we come to that, we see, "...and I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass..." mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands." Now, what we find as we look at this heavenly scene are not only these angels who have the seven bowls, but we see a gathering of those who have been martyred during the tribulation, now standing in heaven. And I love the way this is framed in the Scripture. It says they had conquered the beast. Now, some of you might look at that and say, well, now, wait a minute. You know, they were martyred. They were killed for their faith. How in the world can you say that they conquered the beast? And here's how. They did not fall prey. To his deception, they would not bend. They would not accept the mark of the beast and become followers. They conquered by facing death and even receiving death, but now they stand victorious in heaven before the throne of God. And they are watching God bring retribution on the beast and on all of those who had persecuted them and murdered them for their faith. So they are indeed victors. You know, there are a lot of times where we look at events and we think, oh, this is not going well. This isn't going right at all. And from an earthly perspective, that's the way we see it. But you know, the beauty of God is that God transcends what we are able to observe and understand. He moves past that. And that's what we see here. Now finally... These saints who have been martyred are standing in heaven, and they know that God is getting ready to visit His wrath on those who have wronged them. They will watch the God of justice bring vengeance upon those who have harmed them. They will see the answer to the prayer that they gave in Revelation chapter 6 when they cried out, how long, O God, how long before you hold them accountable? They will watch their prayers answered. And that's what we find as we come to this part of the passage. Something else. When we look at this, we see great praise coming from heaven. The latter part of this second verse through verse 4 shares with us praise that takes place. And, you know, as we look at this, we, we may feel a little conflicted because we know that what they're praising God for is visiting judgment upon the wicked. Look at the way it's framed here. These are the ones who had been conquered, and they're standing beside God on this sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. The image is they are worshiping and praising God for what is about to take place. You know, we cannot cherry-pick the attributes of God that we worship and praise. We would all love to worship His mercy and His love and His goodness, and those are worthy of our worship. But God is also a God of justice and wrath, and we should be just as excited about worshiping those truths, those attributes of God, and that's what's going on in heaven because they finally have this perspective. They're seeing the God who is, the God who is just, the God who has wrath, and they are worshiping their hearts out because of who He is. Look at what they say, verse 3, and they sing the song of Moses. Now, there actually is recorded in Scripture the song of Moses. You'll find it in Exodus chapter 15, and I would encourage you to go back and read that when you have time this afternoon. But the song of Moses was a song that was sung after deliverance from captors in Egypt after God had swallowed up the Egyptian army as they were coming to decimate the children of Israel. So here in heaven, it is fitting that these martyrs are now before the throne of God and they're singing praise to their deliverer. They experience the ultimate deliverance into the presence of God. But they are also going to see God judge those who are inhumane, who are terrible to them. That's the promise. That's the hope that Scripture holds forth. So this song of Moses is a recognition of who God is, of His glory, of His strength, of His power. He is the defender of the people of God. He is the deliverer. That's what they praise Him for as they stand before God in heaven. But notice something else in that third verse. In addition to the song of Moses, the Scripture goes on to say that they are also singing the song of the Lamb. Now, who is the Lamb? Jesus, absolutely. We've seen Him identified as such multiple times in the book of Revelation so far in our study. And you know what we find? There is praise that is directed toward the Lamb as well. The Lamb is responsible for bringing all of these judgments upon the earth. The amazing thing about the Lamb of God is this. The Lamb of God died on the cross to take away the sins of the world, and He took upon Himself the judgment that we deserve because of our sin. But for those who refuse to place their personal faith in the Lamb of God, they do not find Him as Savior, they face Him as judge. And that's what's going on here. It was the Lamb who was worthy to open the seals, that song we sang just before the message. It is the Lamb of God who is directing these judgments. He is responsible. And it is the Lamb of God Who at the conclusion of it will return to earth and put his feet in Jerusalem and stand to establish his kingdom? This is the Lamb that we worship. And that's what the Word of God is reminding us of in this passage. And look at the words of this song, it's even included. Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of nations. Here, God is, in the person of Jesus Christ, is being worshipped for being great and amazing, beyond description. His deeds are worthy of us looking to and lifting our praise. He is God Almighty, and He is just and true. Listen. The words of this passage are not the musings of an old man who just made it up as he went along. God revealed these truths to John. And the word that he is sharing is a word of truth from the one who is ultimately just and true, and that is God. In the person of Jesus Christ, he will be the king of the nations. Look at what else we see in verse 4. Who will not fear, O Lord, the glory and glorify Your name. Listen, at some point, everyone is going to see Jesus for who He is. They will acknowledge that He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Even though they deny Him, as they oppose Him, as we'll see a little bit later in the text we'll be looking into, even though they oppose Him, He is Jesus, King of kings, Lord of lords. Paul reminds us In the book of Philippians, God has highly exalted Him, referring to Christ, and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is what? Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This is the Jesus of the book of Revelation, the same Jesus that is our Savior, the same Jesus who is coming again and will establish His kingdom on earth. And all of heaven recognizes that and sings praise, and it's recorded for us right here in this passage of Scripture. Look at what He goes on to say, for you alone are holy, all nations will come And worship you for your righteous acts have been revealed. This is righteous what Christ is doing in dealing with the sin of the Antichrist and the false prophet. And all of those who have been in league with him. Promoting wickedness. Advancing the agenda of Satan. They are now being called into account. And then we come to the next part of this passage. Chapter 15 goes on to talk about this preparation. And notice he talks about this proceeding out of the heavenly temple. Now, just a reminder, as many of you know, the earthly tabernacle and temple were only pictures, models of an actual temple that is in the presence of God. And what we find in this text, starting in verse 5, is all of these judgments come out of the holiest part of that heavenly temple. I would point out to you that it is modeled, the earthly temple, after the heavenly temple. And in the earthly temple, there was the Holy of Holies. It was the place where the mercy seat was and where the blood of the sacrifice was applied. What we find in that copy is actually what is in the heavenly temple. And that is the Holy of Holies, where the blood of Christ was applied to the mercy seat to pay for our sin. And I find it intriguing as we look into this text that the very place where the blood of Jesus Christ was applied so that we would not have to face judgment is the place where these judgments come from. You see, Jesus, again, is either Savior or Judge, depending on how we respond to Him. So, let's look carefully at this text. Look at verse 5. After this I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of the witness in heaven was opened. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues clothed in pure bright linen with golden sashes around their chests. Now, what we see here is this, there will be seven angels who will be administrators of the bowls which contain the wrath of God, which will produce plagues upon the earth. And what we see as we look at this text is these angels who bring these plagues upon the earth are described to us as being in bright linen. They are pure. They are righteous. These are not fallen angels. These are not wicked angels. These are God's angels administering the purpose of God as revealed in the book of Revelation. The Scripture goes on to tell us in the seventh verse, and one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. I find it significant that these are described as bowls of wrath. Think of a bowl. Usually what we think of is like a cereal bowl that's maybe a little deeper, especially if you eat large quantities of cereal. You like it deep and you like it swimming in milk, right? That's not what these are. These bowls are, are shallow bowls that spill out quickly. So, these Bowls of wrath that are going to be described for us in chapter 16 are bowls of wrath that unleash the fury of God, the wrath of God quickly upon man. They will be in rapid succession, and they have been storing up the wrath of God. And finally, it will spill over to where man experiences the due consequences of the sin that he has been guilty of. The scripture goes on in the 8th verse to say this and the sanctuary was filled with the smoke from the glory of God and from his power and no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished Now this description of the smoke that fills the sanctuary it reminds us of a time when the presence of God was in the earthly sanctuary It reminds us of a time when God led His people in a pillar of smoke. It is the presence of God. It is the glory of God, and it is God bringing upon the earth the due consequences for the sin that they have wholeheartedly embraced. But that brings us to the 16th chapter. Now, in the 16th chapter, we see these bowls of wrath described for us and spilled out. And we're going to move quickly through these seven bowls because they're really self-explanatory. What we find first is this in verses 1 and 2. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So God is sending these angels to administer these bowls of wrath. And he says this to the first angel. This would be the first bowl. Verse 2. So, the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. Now, this is a unique judgment. It is a targeted judgment. Who receives the boils and sores? those who have accepted the mark of the beast. This is a supernatural judgment by God on the enemies of God who have stood opposed to Him, who have stood opposed to His people. They will experience the fullness of these harmful and painful sores. Now, think about this. I thought about showing an image from Dr. Pimple Popper. Mm but I couldn't stomach that. I just want you to think about the pain associated with a boil or an open wound. If you've ever seen someone with shingles, um, imagine the misery that's going to be visited upon these people. This is a judgment from God that will be inescapable from the most powerful To the least powerful, those who have been in league with the Antichrist will experience these terrible, terrible sores. It is a judgment that will bring misery, and with the pain and discomfort that is associated with these, there will be the knowledge that they receive these because of their rejection of God something else. We come to verse 3 and we see a putrid blood in the sea that will kill everything in it. Look at verse 3, the second angel poured out his bowl into the sea and it became like the blood of a corpse. Now, the blood of a corpse, that's blood that has darkened. Depending on the state of the corpse, it's become foul. This is a description of that which covers the majority of the earth's surface. Earlier in one of the plagues we saw that a third of the sea was subject to death. Now it will be the rest of the ocean. All subject to death. This is a supernatural judgment from God on earth. Many try to allegorize this. Many try to question it. I believe it's literal. I believe it's true. And I believe that it's coming upon those who will not follow God. Something else we see. Potable water will become blood. Look at verse 4, and it says this, The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O Holy One, who is and was, for you brought these judgments. For, now listen to this, They have shed the blood of saints and prophets and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. This judgment is not an angry God run amok. This judgment is the righteous response of a holy God to the horrible, horrible treatment that mankind has directed toward His choice servants. They were responsible for the blood of the martyrs and prophets. So, if they were bloodthirsty, they must now drink blood. That's the judgment. It's a terrible judgment. So, I want you to think about the condition so far. Stench from the oceans, those systems that usually cleanse by water flowing into it, evaporating, bringing rain, dropping rain, stench like a corpse's blood, boils all over their skin, thirst because water is undrinkable. All of this because of their choice to reject God. And notice what the seventh verse says. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord, all, Lord God the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. Heaven is in agreement with what is going on. Then we come to the fourth bull. Now, I put down for this, people will experience real global warming. Look at the eighth verse. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. And they were scorched by the fierce heat. And they, look at this, cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. And look at this, they did not repent and give him glory. So here are these blasphemers suffering for their blasphemy and rather than looking and saying you know I need to reevaluate who I've been backing they curse God and they absolutely refuse to repent even as their sores are throbbing their thirst is not quenched and as the heat from the sun intensifies their thirst and the pain that they experience from these terrible sores. They refuse to repent. That is a hard heart. But that's where they are. Look at what else we find. God will plunge this kingdom of the beast into darkness. Look at verses 10 and 11. It says here, The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. And the people gnawed at their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores, and they did not repent of their deeds. Repeated again is this response of refusal to repent and this cursing of God because not only do they have this intense heat, but it is now in intense darkness. So their suffering is unimaginable no one has experienced suffering like this then we come to the next part of the passage and that is a path torn Armageddon is described for us, starting at verse 12. And let's read this together. It says, the sixth angel poured out his bull on the great river Euphrates. Now, many of you know that Euphrates is that river that is between Iraq and Iran. And it says here that its waters dried up to prepare the way for the kings of the east. Now, a lot of speculation has been given as to who the kings of the east are. And you read any five commentaries and you'll get 12 different interpretations of what that might be. I'm not going to identify it. We know that there will be a gathering army against the people of God and against God, and I'm going to leave it there. But then it goes on in the 13th verse, and it says this, And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon. Now, who is the dragon? Satan. Satan. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. Now, these unclean spirits are demons, and so there is a spiritual dynamic to what's going on here. These demons are going to go out, and they are going to further deceive the followers of the Antichrist, the false prophet, and Satan, because the text goes on to say in verse 14, And they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God Almighty. Now, there is a battle. It is called the Battle of Armageddon. How many have heard the term Armageddon before? We hear it applied to Snowmageddon, Um, we will hear, hear it applied to a lot of different things that aren't significant. Um, folks, this will be significant. This mustering of troops is a demonic deception that many countries will buy into. And they will think that they are actually c- capable of standing against the returning Christ who will come to establish His kingdom on earth. In their foolishness and pride, their goal is to stop the purpose and the plan of God. Furthermore, look at the 15th verse. It says this, Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked, and be seen exposed. The words of our Lord and Savior, Christ Jesus. There needs to be a preparation, a readiness as these days approach. Then the 16th verse, and they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Now Armageddon is a valley I should have used a bigger map, but uh, it is a valley that is well north of Jerusalem. And many Bible teachers believe this will be a staging area and that they will actually advance down through the valley toward Jerusalem to stand against the returning Christ. These who gather at this valley of Megiddo... Are going to try to stand against the one true God. Guess what the word Armageddon means in Hebrew? The place of slaughter. Now, I don't know about you, I would have to be really deceived to gather in a place called the Battle of Slaughter to go fight a battle. But that is the level of their deception. They go to stand. Against the Lord. Final part of this passage. There is a powerful climax to God's bowls and plagues. And we find that in verses 17 through 21. So, very quickly, look at this. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, It is done. When Jesus died on the cross, what did he say? It is finished. And now as this wrath has been unleashed on man and as man comes to stand against God in this great battle of Armageddon, God is saying, here is the conclusion of my wrath and look at what is described starting in that 18th verse. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake such as there had never been since man was on earth, so great was that earthquake. Now, we've seen the aftermath of horrible earthquakes, but these do not hold a candle to the earthquake that is described for us in the book of Revelation. As a matter of fact, it's so intense. Look at what the scripture goes on to say. Verse 19. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and God remembered Babylon the Great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. Now, we're going to drill down on Babylon the Great a little bit more in the concluding chapters that we'll be looking into. But the question is, what is the great city? Now, there are some who believe that the great city is Babylon, but there are others who believe that the great city described is the city of Jerusalem. Zechariah said the following in his prophecy, On that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives will be split into two from east to west by a very wide valley so that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward. Apparently, there is a large earthquake that happens when Christ returns, and that's the context of what we're looking into in this very passage of Scripture. And so here's the image. You have blasphemers and wicked people assembled, moving toward Jerusalem. You have Christ returning, touching His feet on the Mount of Olives, The Mount of Olives splits, and the city of Jerusalem breaks into three pieces from an earthquake. And by the way, when you look at the fault lines globally, if you start a chain reaction of earthquakes, this is very plausible. Look at what else we find. The Scripture goes on to describe not just a local cataclysm that will take place. But it talks about a global cataclysm. Because verse 20 goes on to say this, every island fled away and no mountains were to be found. So, islands swamped. What happens when you have an earthquake in the ocean? Tsunami. Islands disappear. Mountains were formed by the earth's crust pushing up. You have an earthquake and the earth's crust goes back down as those tectonic plates shift. Complete global change as a result of the judgment of God. And as if all of that is not enough, look at verse 21, and great hailstones About 100 pounds each fell from heaven on the people. So here is the culmination of God's wrath, and finally man's going to turn around and respond, right? Wrong. It says, and they cursed God for the plague of hail because the plague was so severe. Why does God's Word include a passage like this in the eternal Word of God. These passages are placed into Scripture to give us an accurate picture of God. In this case, it is focusing on the justice of God, the almighty power of God. I don't know about you, but after reading a passage like this, I would never refer to God as the man upstairs. He is God Almighty and should be respected as such. He is a powerful God, awesome God. And we as human beings have a responsibility to wrap our brains around who God is to the best of our ability, with the revelation He's given us. We are not to be like the people described in this passage who look at the things that God is doing and cry out, cursing Him, blaspheming Him, rejecting Him. Now, I know that there are a lot of people who say, well, Pastor, I'd never do that. Well, listen. Listen. Every time someone shares the gospel with us and we reject it, we're rejecting the same God. And there's no guarantee that down the path my heart won't become hardened to the extent that the hearts described in this passage are hardened toward God. So, this is not only for the people of God to have an understanding of God's wrath and God's power and God's strength. But this is also a warning to those who would reject God. Now is the day of salvation. Do not harden your heart because in hardening our hearts there is every potential that we will become like those described in this passage, rejecting the one true God. This is not a passage of Scripture that I enjoy preaching, apart from just looking into God's plan as it unfolds, we all feel that compassion. But I'm reminded that the compassion and mercy that I feel is nothing compared to the compassion and mercy that Almighty God feels. God is not willing that any should perish. That's what the Word of God says. And he gives every opportunity to people that they might not. So the question that we have to ask is, number one, if you've never come into that personal relationship with God, what are you doing with God? Where are you? Do you number yourselves with the rejectors and the cursers of God? Or do you number yourself with the people of God? Second issue, as believers... There are millions and millions and millions of people that are separated from God and need to know Him. Our work's cut out for us. We need to share the truth of the gospel because it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. So be about the business of sharing the truth of God to move people to turn to Jesus and embrace Him as their Savior. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for this text. It is a hard text to look through, but it is not complicated to understand. You lay it out for us. Lord, my prayer is that if there is one this morning who does not know You, let them no longer harden their heart, but let them turn to You finding Jesus as Savior, that they might not face Him as judge. And Heavenly Father, we pray that we would be about the business of sharing the gospel. You have called us to this. May we be faithful witnesses, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.